welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. That's Facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also hit me up, that is uh, Austin Glidden. You can at Austin Glidden on Twitter. You can search for me on Letterboxd. I'm Austin Glidden on Instagram. All the things. Feel free to hit me up. I love talking to folks. You can also email us at MediumCoolPod at gmail.com. And if you feel so inclined, you can uh, rate and review the show on whatever uh, podcast, place, thing, app, whatever you're listening to us on. We'd appreciate it. Follow us or subscribe to us. Whatever the thing is, all of it helps. Now, uh, I am continuing this week my 2021 movie cram. This is part two. Uh, I'm just going to talk about a few things. I'm going solo today, but I do have five movies I chose to talk to you about this week, and I will tell you a little bit about those in a moment. Um, I do want to say that I may go bi-weekly for the next month or so. Uh, Not exactly sure what I want to do about that yet. Uh, I do have a few guests planned out uh, in December, so I'll definitely have those episodes uh, later in the uh, month closer to Christmas and New Year's, like those times. But between now and then, I may just go every other week. I'm not sure yet. With holidays and everything, I'm trying to make time, more time to watch these movies so that I can, you know, not only share them with you, but do what I need to do as a critic to keep up. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, just don't be surprised if I have a couple more replay episodes where I uh, replay some of the older episodes. I may even throw in, every time I'll probably have a new intro, but. Um, I may even throw in some 2021 movie reviews before those replays if I get extra excited uh, about sharing them with you. Either way, I'll let you folks know, and uh, trust me, I'll tell you about it if it's worth telling you about it. So uh, today I'm going to cover uh, a few movies, five. First, we're going to talk about King Richard. Second, we're going to talk about uh, Titan, which is a, a French film, really cool. Then I'm going to talk about The Eyes of Tammy Faye. I'm going to talk a little bit about The Card Counter, which is the Paul Schrader film. And then finally, I'm going to end with Prisoners of the Ghostland. That will round out the third and final Nick Cage movie uh, that I've talked about on here. I think I might have ranted about Willy's Wonderland rather than like did a review. I don't even remember. I hate that movie. But... <laughs> but um, the, the most important thing is we're going to round out with uh, Nick Cage's last film. I'll tell you how I felt about that. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to go ahead and jump into uh, King Richard. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, whatever it is, please hit us up on the social media I mentioned before. But now, hey, let's go see about King Richard. All right, everybody, King Richard came out this year, directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green, written by Zach Balin, cast Will Smith, Anjanou Ellis, uh, Sanaya Sidney, Demi Singleton, uh, Tony Goldwyn, and John Bernthal. It was released November 19th, 2021. That was last Friday, everybody. And uh, it had a budget of $50 million. You can watch it now on HBO Max. Uh, And uh, the biopic takes a look at how tennis superstars Venus and Serena Williams became who they are after the coaching from their father, Richard. Richard is raising his two aforementioned daughters, plus his three stepdaughters in the late 80s, early 90s uh, in Compton, California. Gangs, the ghetto, as he calls it, uh, the Rodney King beating, racism, everything seems stacked against him. But Richard has a plan and God damn it, that plan is going to come to fruition. But through Richard's determination, his wife Orsine's support, and Venus and Serena's blood, sweat, and tears, they fight to make it to the top. And spoiler alert, they make it. Uh, If you do not know Venus and Serena Williams, who they are, uh, that's your fault. I don't even watch tennis, and I know uh, they are huge celebrities, and uh, the story is pretty well known. But um, I'm not giving out spoilers of this movie, by the way. So just keep that in mind. Uh, But that's just like a thing you know. It'd be like doing a a Martin Luther King biopic and not knowing he got assassinated. It's like, read a book. Anyways, uh, (laughs) uh, King Richard is such an interesting thing. Uh, The name King Richard is apt because though I don't believe Richard is ever called that, like King, uh, he certainly gets what he wants. Richard is uh, played very well by Will Smith, who looks like he will never age. So uh, <laughs> the makeup team had to try, um, but it looks it looks good, and his performance is excellent. 
But I find it interesting that not only is the film mostly shown from Richard's perspective, but he is the protagonist, like, for sure. Like, from beginning to end, this is our guy. And he's not an easy man to live with, clearly. After Venus wins her first tennis competition, she and her four sisters brag about how good she was and how bad her opponents were. And Richard takes them home. Um, and forces them to watch Cinderella to learn a valuable lesson about humility. But he's, like, kind of an asshole about it. <laughs> and it's like, I agree they should learn humility, but you're not a good teacher, and you're kind of messing this up. It comes down to his wife, um, Orsine, essentially uh, forcing him to come out and clearly say what he expects them to learn from Cinderella, and he does, and the kids learn. My beef is Richard pretty much, you know, made arguably bad decisions throughout the entire film that only worked out because he had exceptional athletes as daughters, not because his ideas were actually exceptional or great. So why are we praising this guy? And I feel like the film is doing just that. It's praising Richard by the end. And, you know, he's the hero and... Everyone is thanking him at the end. The girl's uh, tennis coach says, you did it to Richard. And his daughters, you know, love him for it. But he made an arguably, he made bad decisions. And it's just such a weird experience watching a movie like this. You know, I, I, I do not need to like a protagonist to like a movie. So if I don't like the protagonist, that does not mean the movie is going to be bad. Um, and I'm not saying I did not like Richard. Uh, he has moments of warmth and sweetness and softness. Uh, he seems like he can really be a good dad, you know? And so, you know, sometimes he's very easy to like. There's a scene where uh, he makes decisions for Venus when uh, she's old enough to kind of have her own input. And the decisions he made are not what Venus wanted. So he approaches her with teary eyes and apologizes and makes good. And we, you know, we've seen this a million times in movies, but this time was one of the effective ones and shows that despite his problematic judgments sometimes, there is a good father there. And, you know, he experienced a lot of hardship growing up. The KKK straight up in his shit, uh, law enforcement, which, you know, at the time, and some would argue all the time, uh, was mostly the same thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was poor, etc. He was, you know, he had a rough life. And, and we see that in his decisions. He wants his kids to have a good life, a better one than he had, and his overprotectiveness comes through in that, right? And so I, I just wish the film would have acknowledged more of his traits as being possibly problematic rather than Richard, you know, needing to be this way in order for Venus and Serena to be successful, and that's the only way it happened. I just, I don't know. I, I get hung up on that. So Richard is fine, uh, though I think Will Smith plays him very well. Like, it's a good performance. I just, the character itself, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, but Richard is fine. But I really love the moments with the family. So Anjanou Ellis plays Oracine, uh, Richard's partner, wife, and she is a strong source of comfort, support, and uh, your fucking upness. You know, <laughs> like she's not afraid to just say, like, you're messing up right now. And, uh, you know, her time with the girls is great, and she stands up for them often. And, uh, you know, remember that time when I said the kids were bragging and Richard was upset and made them watch uh, Cinderella, you know, and wanted to teach them a lesson? Well, before he settled on Cinderella, he was going to send them into the corner store to get drinks, and then he was just going to leave them so they could, quote, brag about having to walk three miles home, end quote. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he did. He sent the kids into the corner store and he started driving off and Oracine stopped him. You know, she was still in the front seat uh, next to him and she's the only person that could really make him do what she said. And, you know, maybe not all the time, but more than anyone else. And I just thought she was really great, not only because of that, but I just thought generally she was really great. And what an important component when you have a character like Richard to work with. Uh, she was really important to that story. Now, call me typical. But uh, part of me wishes that this movie would have just been one of two things. Either 
a film with two different simultaneous but prominent storylines going at once, or I wish it would have just focused primarily on Venus. Nothing against Serena, but it's definitely about Venus. She was the first one to make it, so to speak. And so that is the kind of focus of the film. Of course, Serena's in there, and, and, and she starts to make it at that point, but Venus is the one that gets there. And if it were two stories, Richard and Venus could have you know, a parallel storyline that we see two perspectives of, and by the end, their perspectives align. Easy peasy. Uh, you know, I want this because to see Richard through Venus's eyes could have been really interesting. Venus and Serena are great here, played by uh, Sydney and Singleton, um, excuse me, respectively. And they're really great here and have such an interesting story. I wanted to see the film from their perspective. This is probably because I'm not a huge fan of Richard, uh, but nonetheless, Venus has a wonderful story to tell. And Sydney and Singleton uh, deliver two performances here that are really, really good. Uh, so I'm really proud of that uh, for them, I guess. Uh, the performances at large are really great, and my favorite is unfortunately a white guy amidst a glorious black main cast, uh, but John Bernthal kills it in this movie as Rick Macy, uh, tennis coach extraordinaire. Uh, full transparency, I have always seen a good actor in Bernthal, um, but I didn't like him in The Walking Dead. I thought he was just fine in Fury for 2014. I thought uh, he was a decent Punisher. Like he had the look and stuff, but when it really got into like character and stuff, I just didn't. I always it always felt performative to me, um, and I thought he was great in The Wolf of Wall Street, but he's not in it hardly at all. You just get little glimpses of him, and uh, man, the role of Rick Macy is great. We finally get a truly good character, a supportive, lovable character, and it's not that I wanted to see Bernthal in. Uh, a, to be a character like this, you know, or, or at least I didn't know I wanted to see, you know, I thought he was like kind of a tough guy or like the man's man, but no, he's just like this really cool, lovable character in this. And he's just a good dude. Um, and I just think Bernthal kills it. And I honestly don't even know what to say about him. He's just makes me happy when he's on screen. And I, it doesn't feel performative to me, which I feel a lot of his performances are. And so total, total props uh, to uh, to Burnthaw. I, I really love that character as a supporting character. Um, but that's another thing about the film that it has going for it. You know, this story is about black culture infiltrating white culture. And, you know, it's starring a dominantly black cast that kicks ass. Like, they are all good performances, regardless of how I feel about the characters. They all do really well. And, uh, you know, I love that representation here. I'm so glad none of the white characters steal the screen time. You know, like, they only get what they need. Even Rick Macy, like, though I love him on screen and I love that character, he's only in it when he needs to be. He doesn't, you know, soak up any of the glory. This is about... Uh, the representation of the black cast, and that is what it ends up being. Uh, but this is about the black a, a black family being successful, and I appreciate that. If, if there's anything I like uh, about Richard's seemingly blind dominance, it's that that trait is what keeps this a film about a black family. And honestly, I, I almost wish we would have seen more about that specifically, like like dealing more with that family dynamic almost, which, you know, this movie was two hours and 25 minutes long. We did not have time for it to be any longer. It, it's too long as it is, though. I didn't feel that. I actually had a good time watching it. Um, but it is a long movie. I get it. You know, we're not watching a Marvel, like an MCU movie right now, so we don't need the two-and-a-half-hour running time. Um, but again, good performances, good story, no complaints there. There's nothing uh, particularly notable about the production, music, editing, etc. It does exactly what it needs to and is overall pretty well done. In some, uh, this film is good, uh, but I just have a few hangups with some of the messaging I feel like the film is projecting. I don't feel like Richard is portrayed as a f as a flawed as he was, you know? <laughs> um, or rather, maybe it's that he is portrayed in the way he should be, but the film seems to be promoting different ideas about what we're seeing, you know? Like, I'm not... I'm not connecting with whatever this film's putting out in terms of Richard. And again, I don't think he's like a bad guy. It's not like he's a villain or something. I just don't really like how he's 
projected, I guess, maybe, in this movie. I would much rather see it from Venus and Serena's perspective. But either way, I liked it overall. The first act was just okay, but it does set up stuff so that the second act, uh, where there's a distinctive transition, but the second act uh, is better, and then halfway through the movie, I was definitely into it. Like, by the time we get halfway through the second act, I was in um, and ended up really enjoying it. King Richard is streaming on HBO Max. Uh, you should go check it out. I, you know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it gets some Oscar attention early next year. Uh, it's just that kind of thing. But I gave King Richard a three and a half out of five. If you've seen it and you agree or disagree, please hit us up. Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next up, I'm going to talk about the French what the fuck movie. Teton. Wow, everybody. This movie right here, Teton, came out this year, written and directed by Julia Ducourneau. The film stars Agatha Roussel and Vincent Linden. It was released October 1st, 2021 here in the States. And uh, you know what? It actually won the Palme d'Or at this year's Cannes Film Festival, which is, uh, you know, a pretty hefty award. I'll talk a little bit more about that here shortly. Titan, you know, would make some think the film is about a series of unexplained crimes and a former firefighter being reunited with his son when he's, you know, been missing for 10 years. But oh, contraire, uh, this is much more than that. Holy shit. Uh, this is a film uh, about a little girl named Alexia, who's played by Roussel, uh, who annoys her father during a drive, and as she removes her seatbelt, you know, um, you know, because she's like upset, uh, her father turns around to scold her, causing a car crash. And Alexia, uh, the only one that suffered any injuries, suffers a terrible skull injury and has a titanium plate fitted into her head. Uh, you know, when she gets out of the hospital, she shuns her parents and embraces their car passionately. This film, <laughs> this film, dude, that's our, I'm like laughing because that's already a ridiculous synopsis, but uh, <laughs> this film has murder, aggressive sexuality, uh, themes of gender identity, car sex. I mean, you know, having sex with a car, not the other kind. <laughs> this shit is crazy, man. Um, it's a body horror film that is ultimately about love, acceptance, and trauma, um, and variety critic Peter uh, De I cannot speak today. Uh, Peter De Bruges uh, called the film a cross between David Cronenberg's Crash and uh, the uterine horrors of Takashi Miike's Gozu, uh, which I think is like a wild statement. And it's not not true to use a double negative. Um, Titan is France's Oscar entry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say that without laughing. It's uh, their Oscar entry for this year, which makes sense, you know, uh, after its win at the Cannes Film Festival. And uh, having ended um, King Richard with expectations at the Oscars, uh, if you have seen that and now you have seen or plan to see Titan, it's like, what? Uh, this is it's like so bizarre. I mean, there have been far more disturbing and bizarre movies up for Oscars before. It's not that crazy, but it's just... I don't know, just like what a weird movie to be up for all of these awards. Um, anyways, you know, I'm going I'm to break this down by character, and then I'll talk a little bit about the director and some other aspects of the film. So Alexia has experienced extreme trauma in her life, both physical and emotional. Uh, after the car crash that I mentioned earlier, she does, she does get obsessed with cars like, whoa, uh, and uh, she not only kisses the car, her parents' car, after she leaves the hospital as a child, uh, you know, as if thinking or like greeting it like an old friend or or or, or thanking it or something. Um, but later in life, she becomes a showgirl and dances on cars uh, for car shows. And so, you know, uh, more so than any other dancer, she looks like she's making love to this car. Okay. <laughs> Um, she's like really into it. Um, but after the accident, her brain trauma causes her to be like offset, maybe is a way to put it. It kind of unhinges her a bit. 
and she has urges one could consider unusual, maybe. So, uh, you know, beyond her sexual attraction to cars, uh, she has a taste for blood also, uh, you know, after she is nearly assaulted. Uh, but you get the sense that this isn't her first rodeo and that blood is a something she's had a taste for for a long time. Uh, but in fear of spoiling anything, I will stop there with with the explanation of Alexia's uh, character because it's just something I think you should just see. And all you need to know is she's just a really bizarre character that we, the audience, are forced to stay with because she is the protagonist. Um, for better, for worse, that's where we are. And so uh, already a bizarre-sounding film, but I'm going to continue. Then there's Vincent, played by Vincent Lind Linden, and he's like a middle-aged firefighter captain that is looking for his son, who's been gone for 10 years. And upon reuniting with his son, Vincent notices his son is acting weird, and he's not the same. Uh, but day in, day out, Vincent loves his son unconditionally, no questions asked. But even when Vincent has you know certain realizations throughout the film, he is steadfast in that love to the extent of you know, voluntary blindness. <laughs> I mean, not literal blindness, but I mean, just being blind to the situation. But he's also an addict, constantly injecting himself with steroids straight into his ass to the point that he'll pass out or just zone out for a while. Like he's abusing these clearly. And, you know, Vincent has dealt with this pain and loss for so long, but he can't seem to stop habits that he accumulated during that stint of grief. So we see Vincent struggle. And, you know, it was once Vincent came into the story that I really started to care about the film. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. And to be honest, although I was surface level entertained with the first act of the film, I did not think it was great. Uh, it's very possible there is a French cultural trait to the humor uh, in this film that I'm missing, but despite having seen many French dark comedies, uh, you know, maybe that's the case, but I just didn't think the movie was funny. And furthermore, like, I see what's supposed to be funny, but it doesn't feel funny. And I don't know if that comes across my language there, but it doesn't feel funny. And director Ducarnu, uh, her humor is so subtle that it almost doesn't register for me. Like, clearly I see why this is ridiculous, why this could make people laugh, but it just was not connecting with me at all. Uh, I was simply distracted by the kind of shock and awe occurring before my eyes. I, and I'm not, like, shocked or anything. Like, it wasn't anything offensive to me. It wasn't anything I haven't seen before or seen worse. I mean, some of these things I've never seen before, but, you know, it, not in a shocking way, though. Uh, you know, I've, I've been there, done that kind of a thing. Um, and it was interesting, but I feel like this is the kind of movie that someone might watch and then look to a friend and go, am I allowed to laugh at this? Because <laughs> it gets so ridiculous, but the characters are so serious. Normally, that would actually be a huge compliment. I love when uh, actors take their roles seriously. Um, but this is very different than like Reanimator or something, you know, where Jeffrey Combs is like super straight acting. You know what I mean? Um, and it's just like really funny because everyone's kind of self-aware and in on the joke, but they're just really like, they're showing their convictions in their performance. You know, this is not that, uh, this is something different. So if somebody's fucking a car, okay. Um, that's hilarious, but not because it's funny, but rather because it's like, what the fuck is happening? And you have no other response to this other than to just laugh. And that's just like a different level of humor. That's like a different type of humor, rather. Anyways, who am I to judge? Ducarno uh, was only the second woman to win Khan's uh, top prize, second to Jane Campion, who won in 1993 with the piano. But even hers was kind of a tie of sorts because Farewell My Concubine won as well. So uh, Ducarno made history with Titan. Uh, she tackles a few really interesting topics uh, that I'll look at here. Uh, Titan is focused on exploitations of gender and queerness. Um, you know, there's an abundance of body horror that uh, pulls on the physical pain of pregnancy and abortion. Um, and attacking the patriarchy certainly is prominent in the film. You know, it's, it's very present there. Um, and... Uh, so, yeah, let, let, let's start with the latter. Let's let's look at the patriarchy here. Ducarno told NBC News from the get go. I'm quoting now from the get go. I absolutely did not want to justify my character's violence, and I did not want to psychologize the fact that she's a psychopath. 
When women kill in movies, it is very often linked to a cause that is explained. There's a justification. But men can be inherently violent for no reason. But for women, it is utterly unacceptable, end quote. Now, with Alexia, someone who can kill with, quote, no emotion, no justification, you know, uh, NBC News went on to say Ducarnot said uh, she wanted to break with the uh, social construct that women are designated victims who can't or won't retaliate. So the film certainly was, uh, you know, intended to break the inherently patriarchal concepts we see in film, uh, but it is also it also wrestles with exploitations of gender and queerness. So as a car show girl, Alexia is around a lot of cars. She slinks around the showroom looking at all the cars, you know, uh, her head scar straight out of a Cronenberg movie from the 80s, you know, ever present. And uh, she, you know, eventually sees this really nice car, this black one with all these like really cool flames, uh, you know, on the hood and stuff. She begins dancing around it and on it. Clearly this was on purpose, like she works there. But this is the car she gets extra passionate about. The scene that follows is the most talked about scene in the film, and some have read read it as the queerest. Uh, the argument is that this is the least heteronormative thing you can do. Um, and uh, yes, it's like cars and sexuality, which is, you know, one could argue is hyper-masculine fantasy. Um, but not this. Not this thing. Trust me. Okay, this is different. Uh Later in the film, however, we get a more conventional look at sexuality and gender identity, which is, uh, you know, uh, which what's more non-conventional than what I described earlier with the car, but uh, I digress. Uh, we see concepts of gender identity, more gender fluidity, really, uh, and Ducarnot, you know, even explicitly subverts this as well. You know, she runs with these ideas of gender, and by marrying it with body horror, she's able to kind of stretch it to take it to its most perverse and fantastical end. Um, and she says uh, this very active, very devouring relationship with the car makes her, being Alexia, reclaim the narrative over the patriarchy and makes her own desire prevail over a symbol of masculinity, being the car. And Ducarno said, uh, or that's what she said. <laughs> that's what she said. Anyway, sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, quoting Ducarno. <laughs> I have like uh, Michael from The Office in my head now. But anyways, uh, but do you see where the humor kind of creeps in here with some of this kind of wackiness? You know, the metaphors are wild and over the top, but I get why people, I get why people find humor in it. I also get why some people don't get it. Um, it's just kind of a, a strange kind of polarizing approach. And I appreciate that in a filmmaker who has uh, enough guts to kind of do that. So I, however, get hung up on this specific thing, though. You're wrestling with real ideas here. But Ducarnot keeps distracting me with these extreme experiences. And I can't feel or think about much of anything beyond what is specifically on the screen. Now, I would argue DeCarno's approach distracts from these ideas and subverts many of them uh, to the point of making them invisible, uh, though in theory, you know, you can imagine them, but they, they, uh, they're not really coming through on screen, I don't think, you know, not always at least. This is definitely a film that's subtext oozes with ideas of gender for sure. Uh, I guess I just wish it didn't feel so absurdly provocative, callous, and laughable at times. Um, but whatever that said, the direction is beautiful. DeCarno's uh, vision seems to have been accomplished. Cinematographer Ruman Epens uh, makes the film look gorgeous. Uh, the colors, camera work, all of it is very, very nice to look at. Now, I, I, I don't know what else to say about Titan. I liked the film overall, certain parts more than others, uh, but it wasn't quite for me overall uh just a wild ride uh just a really unique experience for the year so far definitely um one way to sum up the film i guess is written out in the form of a tattoo between alexia's breasts and it says love is a dog from hell uh and that sets up for a wonderful ending i think so uh, that's that. I gave Titan a three and a half out of five. Also, uh, if you agree or disagree, please hit us up. Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, up next, the eyes of Tammy Faye. Get ready. We're going into it. Okay, everybody, The Eyes of Tammy Faye came out this year, directed by Michael Showalter, written by Abe Sylvia. It's based on the documentary by Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato from 2000. Uh, The cast, Jessica Chastain, Andrew Garfield, Cherry Jones, and Vincent D'Onofrio. It was released September 17th this year, 2021. And, uh, you know, this is an intimate look at the extraordinary rise, fall, and redemption of, you guessed it, televangelist, uh, and later did many other things, Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, it focuses on Jim and Tammy Faye as they grew up wanting to change the world and uh, fall from grace because of it. All of this is seen and told from the perspective of Tammy Faye, who is incredibly ignorant, but also lovable. Um, as the televangelist couple move through their story, Tammy Faye is the reason we keep watching as she challenges ideas of the church, especially surrounding homosexuality, and goes head to head with the abhorrent Jerry Falwell. Now, before I jump into this one, let me give some personal context that may inform some of my way of thinking here. Uh, As I've mentioned many times on this podcast before, I was raised in the church, and more specifically, I was raised in a tongue-tucking tongue tucking tongue talking <laughs> prosperity gospel charismatic conservative evangelical church okay that is exactly what it was very descriptive but true now we knew about we at the church i mean knew about jim and tammy faye baker i heard random things about their downfall Uh, but didn't know what had happened until I left the church. And I remember watching VH1's The Surreal Life. It was a reality show where a bunch of like B-list celebrities, basically, let's be honest, um, where they all lived together. And an aged Tammy Faye was on the show. And I just remember loving her so much. Uh, You know, she was so sweet. And as a teenager, young adult, me, you know, uh, I remember thinking like, I wish more People at my grandpa's church were like her. You know, in the eyes of Tammy Faye, the movie actually does a great job at addressing, criticizing, and exposing a lot of the issues in the traditional American evangelical church. And this is a biopic projected through the eyes of Tammy Faye, so we see it from her perspective. And from that angle, this is spot on. Now, as a biopic in general, this is above average at best. Okay. However, I challenge you not to watch it as a simple biopic, but rather as a general depiction of the capitalist Christian evangelical machine. Okay. And uh, basically, watching it in that way, you see that the film is really just using the bakers to make the point. So, when watched in this way, the underdeveloped qualities matter significantly less, and the depictions and criticisms of the church feel much sharper. So I encourage you to do that. And just to give you some context, that's a big reason why I actually like the film. So Tammy Faye, what can I say about this woman? (laughs) She's a wild lady. Uh, She always cracked me up uh, with her like slightly, um, you know, broken Minnesota accent. You know, she broke it eventually for the most part. Um, She had terrible gospel music, not bad for the genre, really, but most gospel music is terrible. So... Uh, I don't know. And and her overall aesthetic is just kind of uh, iconic. You know, uh, she had permanent lip liner and eyeliner put on her face. She uh, refused to be seen without her signature clumpy fake eyelashes. I mean, uh, bright makeup choices and tacky but flashy hair. I love her just as she is, you know, <laughs> and Jessica Chastain is Tammy Faye in the movie. And she's so good here. She even does her own singing in the film, which who knew? Uh, I had no idea she could sing, let alone that she did it, though it did sound more like her than Tammy Faye. Uh, But she does a great job. And, uh, you know, man, what it must be like to play a character like this so fervently and unashamedly. Uh, This is the kind of role that one must say, I'm going to go all in for, you know, I'm going to go all in for this one. Because if you miss a beat, you automatically look like a fraud. And yet Chastain is perfect here. She really knocks it out of the park. And let's not forget the little creep Jim Baker, played flawlessly by Andrew Garfield. Uh, 
you know, everything I said about Chastain applies here. Uh, Chastain had the harder gig, I think, but Garfield had to go places I don't remember him going before. So how silly it must be to play such, you know, accurately silly characters um, and make them feel like real people while also being almost otherworldly, you know. And uh, so that that's the catch and uh, probably the biggest compliment to director Michael Showalter I can give. The eyes of Tammy Faye is unabashedly Christian. I'm not saying it's a, quote, Christian movie, but no matter how hyperbolic it seems to be, I have seen it in real life and it is largely accurate to what it is like to be a part of the church or to listen to these televangelists. So uh, despite the humor that it kind of inherently gives the film, you know, uh, charismatic Christians are a hell of a thing. And I think this movie actually digs into that, you know, whether intentionally or not. I think it just happens. So when you see Tammy Faye singing her songs with such conviction, this was my upbringing pretty much, you know. Uh, songs that you think, who could possibly feel anything other than boredom with these tracks? Yet you see them singing them with tear-welled eyes, you know, and, uh, you know, just like really into it. You know, this happens. And Jerry Falwell, what a fucking evangelical political string-pulling asshole. Uh, this is exactly how he's depicted, in my view. That was my interpretation of it. And uh, I just love how this story's told. Even if it leaves me wanting more of something, development, honesty, subtext, you know, through the eyes of... Uh, but through the eyes of Tammy Faye, not quoting the name, the title, but literally saying through her eyes, this is likely how she saw it and thought about it, to be honest. So it's like, who can kind of judge for that other than it just not working as a film in some places? It is based on the documentary of the same name that came out in 2000. I mentioned the filmmakers earlier. And I need to see this doc. I, you know, I think I would love it, but I haven't seen it yet. But I think the important thing uh, going into this film, the Showalter movie, is uh, understanding who our arguably unreliable protagonist is and what the film is actually accomplishing. I already feel like, you know, I need to see it again uh, because I feel like I'm just like on the fence about a few things and I just want to see it again to see if it bumps it up a little bit. But director and comedian Michael Showalter was such an interesting choice for this as a director. Uh, Showalter acted in MTV's The State, which was kind of a taped sketch comedy thing. He was in uh, Wet Hot American Summer and a part of that whole troupe, as well as Wet Hot American Summer First Day of Camp on, on um, Netflix. He was a part of the Stello, the Stello, Stella troupe. Uh, comedy troupe. He was on Reno 911 Miami. He was in Wanderlust, the movie Bob's Burgers. And, um, you know, he directed The Big Sick from a few years ago that got some buzz um, and several other projects before that. But uh, my my point in bringing this up is, is he is largely a silly guy. You know, just watch What Out American Summer. He's ridiculous. And yet I encourage you to go check out Mark Maron's podcast, WTF, whenever he talks with Michael Showalter. And, uh, you know, Showalter is an incredibly intelligent, soft-spoken, educated, thoughtful guy. And when you hear him talk about how he thinks and what he loves to watch and what he loves to create, of course he would do something like The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And it just makes me wonder if he's friends with, like, uh, Jessica Chastain or, or, or Gar Andrew Garfield or the producers or something. Like, I have no idea how he got on this. It's something I wanted to look up and didn't find easily, but I could easily, I'm sure I could find uh, some stories about that. I didn't watch any interviews or anything prior to this uh, review because I just watched it a couple days ago. But uh, yeah, I'm happy that he did it because this is uh, just such an interesting outing for him, I guess. So uh, this wasn't Showalter's baby, though. The film has been a passion project of Chastain's for a number of years, nearly a decade before it ended up being made. Uh, she had seen the documentary, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, that I mentioned earlier, and around 2012, uh, she felt drawn to tell Tammy's story. And I'm glad because, you know, all we had prior to this was Fall from Grace in 1990, starring Kevin Spacey and Bernadette Peters. <laughs> And I don't know why I'm so happy that this was that this new, you know, the Eyes of Tammy Faye movie was made, but I just am so happy 
that Tammy has a story told now that is not fall from grace. Uh, the production is great. Uh, the sets and new footage that is made to look like old footage is so awesome. I really like that. Showalter kills it uh, in terms of visual interpretation. Thanks to cinematographer Theodore Shapiro and set decorator Barbie S. Livingston, it looked so good. Uh, very, very Tammy Faye. Um, the music is, of course, a major aspect, seeing as how Tammy Faye was a singer. And I love how honest the music is used in the movie because it could very easily be played as a joke. But going honest with it actually works so much better, I think. You know, and and adjacent to her music, the Tammy Faye affair, quote unquote, uh, uh, the Tammy Faye affair of sorts is told interestingly too. Sidetrack, I I know, but uh, sidetrack. I also love the way sex is used in the film. When Jim and Tammy Faye are dating, they fool around a bit and they like make out and stuff. Uh, that scene's hilarious, first off. I like actually laughed out loud. Uh, but when they were dating, they fooled around and stuff, but they couldn't bring themselves to do the deed, so to speak, uh, because, you know, Jesus guilt. So Tammy Faye's affair, quote-unquote, is shot similarly, and it has a humor to it. But what I love about how the humor is used in those moments is there's still a truth there. And so, you know, the humor to that does not stifle the other emotions that are at play or inspired in those scenes. So I guess, you know, part of my positive experience is because Tammy Faye was such a character, uh, one that fits perfectly in this medium, and her life, you know, sucked a lot at times, and she deserved a lot. I'm sure she deserved much of what happened in some ways, in some ways, not, not the affair that Jim Baker had and stuff, or the... Sexual outings, maybe one could say, however you want to say it. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure she was not always on the right side of history, I guess is what I'm getting at. You know, whether it was peer pressure from the church or what. But, you know, God damn it, I love her anyways. You know, where she ended up and and she, just like what an interesting lady. In some, the eyes of Tammy Faye, I think it's such a fun watch. And though it has some problems as a biopic, I still had a great time. Uh, I gave it a three and a half out of five also. Uh, this is a very three and a half out of five episode, clearly. Uh, but on upon a second viewing, I may raise it to four. We'll see. Uh, we'll have to wait and see because uh, I'm definitely going to watch it again. Uh, either way, again, problems aside, it's really worth a watch. So if, you, if you've seen it and you agree or disagree, please let me know. Again, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, next up, The Card Counter. Get ready. All right, the card counter from this year, written and directed by Paul Schrader, cast Oscar Isaac, uh, Tiffany Haddish, Ty Sheridan, and Willem Dafoe. It was released September 10th, 2021. And uh, in Schrader's The Card Counter, Redemption is a long game. Told with uh, Schrader's trademark cinematic intensity, this cynical revenge thriller tells the story of an ex-military inter ex -military interrogator turned gambler haunted by the ghosts of his past. That character is William Tell, uh, and he just wants to play cards. His Spartan experience on the casino trail is shattered when he is approached by Kirk, played by Sheridan, uh, with a C, not a K, by the way. And, uh, a vulnerable and angry young man seeking help to execute his plan for revenge on a military colonel. And it's a colonel Tell knows. Tell sees a chance at redemption through his relationship with Kirk. And, uh, you know, keeping Kirk on the straight and narrow proves impossible, which drags Tell back to those very same ghosts he's haunted by. Uh, I, I was reminded of two Schrader films watching this. The 1976 Taxi Driver, which was directed by Martin Scorsese, but Schrader wrote it. And First Reformed, written and directed by Schrader uh, from 2017, which Jake and I covered on episode 32 back in May. Now, I think most of Schrader's scripts and films can tie into Taxi Driver to some extent, many of them. 
but I am specifically drawing from the idea of a man who has come back to society from a traumatic event and gets a simple job, but finds that due to a young person that he has brought into his life, he is pulled back into his past life. Uh, and in Taxi Driver, you know, Travis Bickle goes to Vietnam and comes back to become a taxi driver. While driving uh, the taxi, he befriends Iris, a child prostitute whom he fantasizes about saving from her life of exploitation. And he becomes obsessed with this goal to the extent that it illuminates all of the bad in the world around him, which he justifies, uh, you know, which justifies the actions that, you know, he's already playing out in his mind, these violent acts that he wants to perform. But he sees Iris alone with no one to turn to and decides he will help her get back to her family. The card counter, uh, in the card counter, it's Tell who comes back to society from a stint in prison after doing time for his association with heinous war crimes. He enters society and decides uh, to exploit a skill that he learned in prison. Uh, you know, he's a card counter. So he goes into playing poker for a living. So he plays until he meets Kirk, a young man in need of serious help, and Tell befriends Kirk and makes every attempt to get Kirk back to the only family member that is left, his mother. Uh, but like Iris and Travis, Tell and Kirk's story doesn't end much happier, I'm afraid to say. Um, if you were surprised by that, though, you've never seen a Schrader movie. So... <laughs> uh, the first Reformed comparison, though, is a tonal thing. Uh, Schrader's filmmaking technique in the card counter feels far closer to first Reformed than Scorsese's Taxi Driver, of course, uh, but even different from Schrader's earlier directorial addings like Hardcore. Uh, the pacing is slow in a good way, and the look of the colors, the voiceover narration, like all of those things, honestly, if Schrader makes another film like this in this vein, you know, I see a modern trilogy coming because I actually see these two films are way more akin in many ways than I think uh, I, that people have kind of put together. And I love Schrader's consistency here. Oscar Isaac plays William Tell, the card counter of the title. And uh, in, the, in the opening moments of the film, we learn how card counting works. Now, surprisingly, I had no idea, even though I thought I did, on how to count cards. I still couldn't do it, but I understand the process now. I've always wanted a movie to expose this, so finally in 2021 I got it. But uh, I, Isaac, you know, is fantastic as Tell. I feel like he is made to play a Schrader character. Like he has the look and the walk and the overall disposition, uh, but especially the voice. Isaac's voice works so well with not only the sound of the voiceover, but also Schrader's dialogue. You know, he works really well in this role. Ty Sheridan... This is the dude that, you know, started his career in Malick's The Tree of Life in 2011 and then went on to be in Jeff Nichols' Mud, which I love, X-Men Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. Haven't seen Dark Phoenix. Apocalypse sucks, but Sheridan's good. And uh, Ready Player One. I mean, that's a huge opportunity. And I, though I think the newer X-Men movies suck, uh, <laughs> even though I'm an X-Men, like, huge fan, they're my favorite Marvel stable. Uh, but still, you know, what a career this kid has had already. And uh, he's been in a lot of other stuff as well. But Malick, Nichols, Spielberg, and Schrader, this dude should be better than he is in this movie. Uh, now, he's not bad. Don't get me wrong. Let me be clear. Uh, he is not bad. Actually, there is a scene where he is in a hotel room and feels threatened. I'll just say it that way. And I think he's so good in that scene in particular. Like, that is so good. But the rest of the time, he's so-so. And, and that, that let me down, because honestly, I like Sheridan uh, a lot, so it was a bummer. But, you know, he, he seems off a little bit in this role, and not in a way that he's supposed to, like the character. Like, he just seems off. And, and, and that let me down. On, um, you know, uh, his reactions are really good, though. That's something I wanted to say. He, you know, despite seeming off, his reactions are good, which is something I often look for in young actors. Uh, because, you know, acting is reacting, as that old saying goes. But I find it to be really true with a lot of young actors. If they can get the reacting to things down, uh, they often turn out really good. And uh, Sheridan, man, like, he really hits that out of the park. Uh, he's very good there. It's his delivery and general performance 
uh, of the character that doesn't connect. And I can't tell if it's his performance or it's just the character, but I'm thinking it's his performance based on how I've processed the movie. But again, he's not bad. It's just he's so-so. Uh, Tiffany Haddish plays La Linda. Yes, La Linda. Uh, she runs a stable, uh, uh, which is basically a group of investors who back gamblers for a portion of their winnings. And so she kind of manages those things. She's a talent scout, so to speak. And uh, she comes into Tell's life to bring him in, but, you know, gets more than what she expected in return. I'll leave it at that. Uh, Schrader calls the card counter one of his uh, A Man Sitting in a Room or Man at the Table films. Um, and these kinds of movies were really originated with, like, Brisson's Diary of a Country Priest all the way back in 1951. But Schrader loves Bresson. And uh, has dedicated a lot of time in studying to him, so much so that he wrote a thesis-turned-seminal film text, Transcendental Style in Film, Dreyer, Ozu, and Bresson. Uh, so, you know, it's no surprise that you can feel the influence there as well. But Schrader is a cinephile in the vein of a lot of auteurs from that new Hollywood 70s. And I love that you can still feel 40-plus years later that influence. Uh, there's a lot of care put into this film, too. Uh, Tell is a man trying to escape his past to the extent that he gives himself the name Tell because that is not his original name. And I also think it's interesting, uh, or coincidentally, maybe, or maybe not, uh, Tell is exactly what poker players fear. You know, they try to avoid that, showing their Tell, you know. So, uh, anyways, uh, William Tell was not just an interrogator, though. He was in Abu Ghraib. Uh, as a U.S. Army torturer. Uh, we get glimpses of the past in, uh, like at Abu Ghraib in an ultra-wide angle to the extent that it looks like the room is wrapping around the camera in, a diz in dizzying angles, like it's warped, uh, on purpose, of course. And it was uh, in Abu Ghraib that Tell met the aforementioned Colonel Gordo, uh, played excellently by Willem Dafoe. There's not a lot of Dafoe in this, but when he's on the screen, he's great. Uh, Dafoe seems good in everything. But uh, these Abu Ghraib scenes were uh, just interesting, I guess is the best way to put it. And the discussions of that past, along with those scenes, bring forth some of the most captivating moments in the film. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've been a bit torn on this film. Uh, but I actually did really like it. It's not perfect, you know, which I, I mean, most of the films I talk about on here aren't, but it's my favorite thing Schrader's done in a long time. I liked it more than first performed a little bit, just a little bit. Um, and I, I've liked it more than anything else that I've seen in the past, what, 15 years, maybe 20 years. Um, but yeah, uh, I think this is really good. This is actually probably... It's really hard to say, but based on the rating, it's my favorite of the group. Uh, th this one, I have to admit that the card counter is right on the cusp. This is the only one I went up on. I give the card counter a four out of five. If you have seen the card counter and you agree or disagree, hit us up. Medium Cool Pod, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right, I'm going to go on to the last film, which is Sion Sono's Prisoners of the Ghostland. All right, last but not least, Prisoners of the Ghostland came out this year also, directed by Sion Sono, written by Aaron Hendry and Reza Sixo Safai. I said that weird, I know, but it caught me off guard. It looked like Safari, but it was Safai, I guess. Uh, cast, Nicolas Cage, Sophia Botella, and Bill Mosley. Uh, released September 17th, 2021. So all of these movies, I think, were actually this season, luckily. So only within the past couple months. Uh, you know, in the treacherous frontier city of Samurai Town, a ruthless bank robber is sprung from jail by a wealthy warlord known as the Governor, whose adopted granddaughter Bernice has gone missing. The Governor offers the prisoner his freedom in exchange for retrieving the runaway. Strapped into a leather suit that will self-destruct within five days, the bandit sets off on a journey to find the young woman and his own path to redemption. And heads up, even though the vast majority of the film is in English, uh, you need subtitles to read the little that isn't because I remember it being important. FYI. Anyways, Prisoners of the Ghostland is awesome. 
okay? <laughs> it's awesome in the same way that, like, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome is awesome. Like, it's not that it's an incredible film, but it's just awesome to watch, and that's this. Like, that's this movie. Um, with the mostly Japanese cast, this is akin to Takashi Miike's Sukiyaki Western Django. It's the first thing that came to mind from, like, the first scene. It's essentially a traditional Western set in a bizarre alternate dimension, not literally, um, but it's, you know, a place where samurai, cowboys, geishas, and post-apocalyptic desert and exploding leather suits exist, you know, all this wacky stuff. The movie's wacky. Sometimes uh, a bit too wacky, though, uh, but I'll give you two examples of when it's too wacky, and then I'll talk about how fun it is. At one point, Nicolas Cage's hero, as he is known, he is the hero. Um, you know, Hero is brought out of the prison by request of the governor. Um, he's basically a country bumpkin mob boss, you know, not unlike Michael Parks in Kill Bill as, you know, Sheriff Earl McGraw, <laughs> just campier. But the hero is uh, walking in kind of the swaddling undies that like near naked samurai wear, you know, uh, in the old samurai movies, you know, it's like that swaddling underwear. And uh, he, he's walking over uh, nearly naked to the governor. And this woman just yells, show me your balls. And f it's for no reason. And I just thought it was so stupid. I thought it was funny enough to take a video and then like, because I was watching it at home, to take a video and like send it to a friend of mine that would think it's funny. Because it is funny. Like I'm laughing about it now. But it's like so dumb. Like it doesn't make sense. But almost immediately after that scene, uh, you know, that he's hired to find the governor's daughter. Uh, you know, he's given this badass car to drive. And he drives about 50 yards, stops, jumps out and of the car, and he hops on this little girl bike, decked out in pink with, like, a big white basket on the front. I mean, just, like, the most traditional, quote-unquote, girl bike, right? And it's just so stupid. Like, I mean, the the, the it's just so stupid. I just don't like moments like that. And there are several, not too many, but there are several kind of peppered throughout that are just kind of stupid like that. However, the second example I'll give is funnier uh, when it's super wacky. Now, uh, there's a point where uh, one of Nicolas Cage's testicles gets blown off. Uh, this isn't a spoiler. I think this is just like a fun thing. It's fine. Uh, I feel like you know what's coming. And, you know, he just jumps around freaking out. But then the rest of the movie, he just walks around like normal. You know? And that's like so dumb. But it's like actually ridiculous and funny when it happens. Almost like some scene from like Battle Royale or something, you know. Uh, I actually thought of Battle Royale a lot watching this, uh, believe it or not. So, uh, I mean, it's not as good as Battle Royale. But I'm just saying like it's, it's pretty wacky. Um, Prisoners of the Ghostland, though, you know, uh, can be too much sometimes, I admit. Uh, but it's actually kind of awesome. Altogether. But speaking of being wild, there are a lot of Japanese movies that come out trying to be weird or, or wild. I'll use the word again. You know, they often look low budget in a bad way and, you know, have a super digital look to them, maybe, or the CG, if it has some, but usually it does, is really bad. And uh, I don't know, but Prisoner, Prisoners of the Ghostland looks really great. I mean, it looks better than it actually is. But it doesn't feel uh, like a product of its time that will age rapidly. It actually feels in some ways uh, timeless. And I really responded to that. It like really helped me get into it because, you know, the details matter here. It's like George Miller, creator and director of the Mad Max series. It's like he wrote a script and got everything set up to make, you know, another Mad Max movie uh, in the vein of like Thunderdome, though. But then he died. God forbid. I don't want him to die. But then he died. And then, like, Sion Sono was, like, the replacement. It was like, let's just change the name. <laughs> you know, like, so if you ever wanted a Mad Max movie with Nick Cage as Max, uh, this is probably the closest you're going to get. Um, but it's it's just, like, really creative. Prisoners of the Ghostland, I mean. Really creative and weird and cool and fun. I'm surprised a lot of people hate this movie, actually. Speaking of which, on Letterboxd, the community average score... For this cinematic for the cinematic equivalent to horse shit mixed with trash water, Willy's Wonderland, the second of the th three Nick Cage movies that came out this year. Okay, Willy's Wonderland got a two point seven average. That is a complete tragedy. And the Prisoners of the Ghost Land has a community average of two point six. 
A point one difference. This pisses me off because one, one, oh my God, one is not like the other here, guys, and not in the direction this rating average skews, okay? Willy's Wonderland is still the worst film that's come out this year, in my opinion. It's offensive how stupid and mindless it is. I hate it with a passion, and that is rare. It pisses me off. There's nothing creative or cool about Willy's Wonderland. It fails on every level. It's stupid. Pris However, Prisoners of the Ghostland actually has some artistic quality here. It demands skill to pull off. It looks beautiful. It has better Nick Cage performances. Minus, I will give Willy's Wonderland one, one thing. Uh, there's pinball sequences, which I talked about on the podcast back when I watched at the beginning of the year. There are these like pinball sequences with Nick Cage, um, and they're the only thing in this cinematic equivalent of dog vomit mixed with hot meat water that is known as Willy's Wonderland uh, that is worth a damn, okay? So uh, aside from that, uh, it's a worthless movie, but I digress. Um, so uh, I'm telling you folks this. Uh, this is so much better than Willy's Wonderland, Prisoners of the Ghostland. It pisses me off that people don't see that. It's so by far better. I'm not even speaking this as an opinion. I'm being that asshole that speaks this opinion as fact. This is a better film than that, objectively. I'm going that far. But I, 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 don't, uh, uh, I don't like it as much as Pig, which is a movie I believe I talked about last, last episode. Uh, the last episode that I actually did that wasn't a replay, at least. Uh, but this is the second best Cage movie that I've seen this year. And uh, one of my favorites in a long time. Topped, of course, by Mandy Pig, which I already mentioned. And it's probably on par with something like Color Out of Space. Uh, just, dip, like, obviously very different. Uh, but fuck Willy's Wonderland. Praise be to Prisoners of the Ghostland. So this is the most Nick Cage performance of the year. <laughs> I do kind of air quotes around Nick Cage performance. This is like the most Nick Cage performance of the year. I think he's wacky and ridiculous, but not all the time. Just enough to be like a proper Nick Cage performance, but not enough to like overstay its welcome. So it's actually pretty decent and fun. Uh, Sion Sono uh, called Nicolas Cage the easiest person that he'd ever worked with, um, and it brought him back from the dead, as Sono would say, and I love that. Uh, you know, people uh, also call this the craziest Nick Cage movie, and Cage said it might be the wildest movie I've ever made, but that's saying something. But uh, Sion Sono disagreed, saying it isn't more wild than his favorite of Cage's movies, Wild at Heart, which is a David Lynch film. Actually, I've never seen that, so don't shun me yet. I will see it eventually. I've been waiting to do like a David Lynch like marathon to watch it because there are a few of of his that I haven't seen, like Lost Highway and just like uh, like peppered throughout his career. There are a few that I just need to see. Plus, I need to rewatch um, uh, Mulholland Drive. I'm digressing again. Uh, the point is, uh, Cage is, is good here. I, I really enjoyed him. And that's not always the case, to be honest. But I thought Sophia Botella playing Bernice did so well. Uh, she is the star here, in my, in my view. She actually has a genuinely good performance here outside of the film, just a good performance, you know. Uh, there's a lot of pain behind her eyes, and that's really key to this film. Uh, the plot doesn't really make much sense. I mean, it does generally, you know, but in a Sukiyaki Western, I don't really expect it to, I guess. Um, in the most simplistic terms, it's about a tarnished villain who gets a chance to redeem himself by saving an innocent victim and bringing her back to safety. Uh, but, you know, all the other details tend to kind of dilute anything that the film's doing well in terms of plot. It's just kind of a ridiculous story, and it's fun to watch. Uh, director Sono uh, is a wild dude, too. The movie was uh, delayed for one year because Sono had a heart attack, which is insane. Luckily, for those of us who liked the film, uh, he was able to make it. Nick Cage actually had the movie moved to Japan from where it was originally meant to be shot, Mexico, and uh, so that Sono could stay in Japan and not have to travel as much. Uh, this caused two actors actually to drop off, uh, Imogen Poots and Ed Screen, uh, but uh, they were replaced with Butella and John Cassavetti's son, Nick Cassavetes, who also directed The Notebook, funny enough. Uh, but yeah, I didn't even like recognize him in this. I gotta like go back and watch this movie so I can see Nick. 
But anyways, uh, Sono's prior films like Suicide Club, uh, Cold Fish, and Love Exposure all contain some level of Japanese culture and are intertwined with the happenings within Japan. And, um, you know, if that is the case here, I'm just missing it. Uh, I want to be, but I want to be, I almost sounded like Porky Pig, Um, but I want to be clear, no amount of cultural addition could justify any of the stuff I think is stupid in this movie, so let me make that clear, but, um, but, uh, you know, maybe I, I misunderstood something, maybe I understand it, but intent can only go so far, that said, Sono commonly uses themes you know, in his works, such as sex and cinema, cynicism and and modern Japanese society. You know, he, he likes to tackle these things. And, and it has been said of Sona that he, quote, established himself as one of the most idiosyncratic artists of his generation, end quote. And he is uh, talked about like a real auteur. And I've seen a you know, shamefully low number of Sono movies. I'm not even going to announce how many I've seen because I need to see more. But even with what I have seen, I know this to be true. He is an auteur. This level of vision and skill exists in Prisoners of the Ghostland, even though this isn't really kind of really like those three that I mentioned even. Uh, But you can see an artist at work, even if you think the work is silly. Uh, not just anyone could pull this off. And a lot of people disagree with me and don't think Sono pulled this off, and I just don't understand that side and think they're wrong. So <laughs> uh, that's just really where we sit. Um, but, you know, I have kind of talked around the movie a bit because I just don't want to ruin anything in it. Uh, it was the it was best just going into it and trying to go along for the ride. And most of the time, I did. Uh, you know, though it lost me in certain distracting parts, I thought it was a lot of fun and would happily watch it again. I gave Prisoners of the Ghostland three and a half out of five. And if you agree or disagree with me, having seen it, uh, let me know. Uh, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right, I'm going to sign off here in a second, but I'm going to get a drink of water. So I will be right back. Hang tight. All right, everybody, that is our episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me for the last hour. Um, I gave you five movies that I wanted to talk about on my 2021 cram. Uh, Remember, uh, keep an eye out. If you have not already subscribed or are following wherever you're listening to this podcast, if you have not subscribed or followed our podcast so that you can know when new episodes are coming out, please do that because, as I said, uh, I am going to probably do a bi-weekly thing for a couple of times here um so i'll probably have some replays on those in between weeks so you can go back and listen to some older episodes if either just re-listen to them or if you haven't heard them and again keep an eye out for the titles because i will put on there if i do any 2021 movies before those replays for the long form um but yeah with all the holidays coming up and stuff it's going to be a little tricky so bear with me here uh but hey i'm like so like I have, I still have tons of stuff on my list. I'm excited to see. I can't wait to share them with you. Uh, let me know what some of your favorites were. Again, hit us up on uh, social media, Medium Cool Pod, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. If there's a movie you want me to watch and cover, I will do my best. So shoot me the information and I'll see you. I'll see about it. Uh, but with that, I love you. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy. <laughs>